The Agile mindset has gone from a radical concept to a contract requirement for many large technology companies. But different types of companies can call for different approaches. In his new book, Metagility, former engineer-turned-agile consultant David Bishop outlines his technique for businesses integrating software, firmware, and hardware to partner with their customers around value and quality. In this Hack the Process interview, David will tell us how he used education and networking to transition from full-time employee to solopreneur, why his original business model shifted to meet the demand for agile consulting, and what his experiences investing in incubators taught him about developing an entrepreneurial mindset. Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Today, I'm speaking with David Bishop, and he is the author of Metagility, Managing Agile Development for Competitive Advantage. David, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Good. Yeah, me too. And I'm excited to talk with you about this. I've got a little bit of a background in Agile myself. I'm not sure if my audience knows that much about it. So we might go into some of the details, but tell me a little bit about this new term, Metagility, and where it came from. Well, Metagility, is what it essentially means is meta means management of and agility is agility. So the word essentially means management of agility. And the metagility is essentially a new framework that I've developed based on 10 years of research. And this came about 10 years ago when I was uh, working with a firm trying to conduct what we call an agile transformation. This firm was in the process of developing embedded systems. And so they went through a lot of iterations and challenges with trying to adapt Agile to the kinds of products they were developing. They went through a lot of struggles. And so I thought, you know, there's got to be a better way to do this in these types of situations. And so I kicked off a a research study that turned into a multi-year study and then culminated into a lot of several research papers, actually a body of research that's been published in a number of journals like IEEE and a few others, and then eventually culminated in this book that we're talking about today. Very cool. Yeah, I could see where that could be challenging. Look, because from what I know about Agile, it's uh, it's not really optimized around an embedded systems environment. I think of it more as a software development approach. That's right. And, and that's one of the biggest challenges, because when you think about, you know, today, technology innovation isn't just about software anymore. It's about devices. You know, when the manifesto was written, the Agile manifesto written back in 2001, you know, it was all the technology innovation happening. If you remember back at that time, It was the dot-com days, right? You had e-commerce and websites, and it was all really software. But today, most of the really cool innovation happening is around devices, smart devices, IoT devices, smart meters, smart cars, your cell phone, smart everything. And these devices are composed of hardware, firmware, and software components that are often developed by different teams, sometimes by different companies that have to be tested and released as one cohesive product at some point. And that's very hard to do with a pure Agile implementation. We've thrown around a few terms that some folks in the audience might not be all that familiar with. You mentioned the Agile Manifesto. What is your thumbnail introduction to Agile, traditional Agile? Well, Agile is rooted in lean manufacturing concepts. And uh, this all came about, just to give you a little bit of a history lesson, uh, it, it came about, there were a lot of influences, but 
I would say lean manufacturing as we know it today, which is referred to often as Six Sigma, came about uh, in the 1950s with a guy named Edward Deming, who was brought in as part of the Marshall Plan to get Japanese industry back on its feet. And Edward Deming had originally had something called statistical quality control, but that eventually turned into total quality management. And you may have heard of Deming's 14 points. He was an expert in quality manufacturing. And so he brought a lot of his ideas into Japanese industry. It was originally originally started, I think his first company he worked with was Toshiba, and they were building vacuum tubes. And of course, you know, back in the day, today we have microchips. Back in the 60s, they had what transistors and then vacuum tubes were the, were the predecessor, right, to uh, the microchips of the day. And so they had a lot of quality problems around developing these vacuum tubes. And so that was his first project. And Japanese industry took these ideas and ran with it to make a very long story short. And that culminated in the, uh, into the uh, Toyota production system. And, and there were a couple of Japanese researchers who published a paper on that in 1979. And this Toyota production system espoused the ideas of, of Kaizen, continuous improvement and teamwork and, and all these sorts of things. That is essentially what took Toyota from making tin can cars to being a world-class automaker. Agile, as we know it today, is it basically takes these lean manufacturing concepts and adapts it to the software development industry. That's what the Agile Manifesto was about, was to take some of those ideas from, from manufacturing that were working so well and trying to adapt it to software because software at the time was having trouble keeping up using the old waterfall or stage gate process as we know it, or what we called back in the 90s SDLC, Software Development Lifecycle. And of course, that came out of the space program in 1970. It was developed as a process for developing uh, software for the Apollo program. It was slowly and but surely adapted to by other parts of uh, the government, other departments and other government agencies, and then eventually came over into private industry. And so that's how software had been developed for about 30 years or so up until the early 2000s. And then the Agile Manifesto was sort of a game changer to say, hey, we're going to adapt these lean manufacturing techniques to the software industry and adopt a more iterative development process that's going to be more reactive, that's going to allow us to adopt and adapt technology and get technology to the market quicker. What's fascinating to me about that story is, is, and it's one that I'm familiar with, but I love that it starts off with devices and with hardware manufacturing, which is something that we now associate with a much more longer term waterfall type approach to development, whereas it was adapted into the software industry. And then software takes such advantage of the power of iterative development that it became the spokes model for, for that sort of thing. Absolutely. That's right. Yeah, and it sounds to me like right now the sort of work you're looking at and uh, the concepts from from the book that you've got, look at how that applies in an industry that spans both software and hardware and the middleware and those those intermediate levels. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to that and how that, that whole trip has taken you back again to looking at the middleware and the hardware and all of these other aspects? Right. So uh, a little over 10 years ago, when I was working with a firm who was trying to uh, conduct this agile transformation, they had tried three or four times and had had sort of lackluster results. They had brought in consultants two or three times and hadn't really achieved what they wanted to, because especially back at that time, most agile consultants had never really worked with embedded systems type situations before. And so they were relatively new to it as well. And they were struggling with, you know, we've got these guys over here developing hardware and then we have these guys over here developing firmware. And then we have the software teams that we're all familiar with, but 
how do we get all these guys to work together and, and how do we get them all on the same track and how do we synchronize the development of all these, essentially what were three separate products in, into one systems release? That was a very big challenge. And so part of what I was trying to do at the time was we tried a lot of different things. And to make a long story short, the company managed to adapt Agile in a very specific way that enabled them to become number one in their market. And Metagility is essentially a, the attempt to bottle this idea up and provide a mechanism for people to replicate those ideas in their company to achieve the same results, or at least very close to it. So back when you were brought on to do this, this company was trying to implement an Agile transformation. Why did they think that Agile would be a successful approach for them? Well, there were a couple of reasons. First of all, their customers were asking for it. A lot of the RFPs that they were getting were demanding that the company had take on some sort of Agile approach or lean manufacturing idea. So that was in all the RFPs that we were getting from our clients at the time. And then there was a huge struggle to be competitive. This was a new industry. So the industry I'm referring to is specifically, it's, uh, it was smart meters, smart grid technology, which is really a subset of industrial IoT. The Internet of Things. That's right, exactly. And so there were a lot of firms who were sort of popping up and doing a lot of the same things. They were, there were several companies who were trying to grab up market share in this industry because uh, obviously the customers were utilities. And utilities, you know, they were getting a lot of funding from the government at that time because they were, I think the Obama administration had kicked off a, a green initiative to provide funding for utilities and, and lots of green technologies, which smart grid was a part of. And upgrading the, the grid was a big, was a very big deal at the time. And this was a part of that. And so all of these companies were struggling to, to get their product out the door first, because once a utility decided what vendor they were going to pick, then they would buy millions of meters at one point, at one time. And those meters were good for 20 years. And so once that utility client was taken, they were out of the market for quite some time. And so there was a bit of a gold rush to try and grab up as many utilities as possible, big ones and small ones across the United States and then eventually around the world. And so it was very critical to get our product out the door first and with as high as quality as possible and grab up that market share before the competition did. And Agile was widely seen as a way to accomplish that because that was its original purpose was all about competition. That's essentially what happened with Toyota, if you think about it. And so that was uh, the strategy at the time. Interesting. It's so unusual to think about an industry being driven by their customers to change. Usually you think of the company seeing problems within themselves that they recognize that come from an executive level or come up from the development level. And they're saying, we need to improve the way we're doing things as opposed to being mandated from the outside to do it. I'm curious how that changed the way that you engaged with these clients. It changed it significantly because, you know, one of the characteristics of Metagility is uh, one of the markers for success is two things. Selecting the right customers and using your customers as partners, you know, and what I mean by that essentially is when it comes to customers, we had some customers who would come to us and, and they would want everything perfect the first time and they wanted everything tested perfectly the first time and they really didn't want to participate. They wanted that product delivered and they wanted it perfect. And we decided that we didn't want to deal with customers like that. Customers like that would get less attention from the company. And customers who are willing to work with us as partners were given more attention and more resources because they essentially served as uh, an extended test team. They were collaboratively working with us to develop the product. And that's really what Agile is all about. 
so, so the company made strategic decisions to focus on those kinds of customers and to leverage their customers in that way. I bet those conversations must have been interesting when you told companies they needed to fire these customers and hire those customers instead. Did you have access to the executives at that level so that you could make those recommendations? Yes, I did at the time. Yes. Many of these many of these utilities were very eager to get this product out the door. And they recognized that, first of all, they wanted to have a part in it. They wanted to have a lot of input on the design. And those are the clients we wanted to work with because that typically produced the best product, you know, because quality is essentially there's two components to quality. You have intrinsic quality and extrinsic quality. Intrinsic quality is the quality as it's perceived by the internal teams, the developers and the testers. We know how many defects that it has and we know its flaws. But extrinsic quality is quality as it's perceived by your client, how well it works, how much they like it. That's also uh, referred to as value. And working with clients in this way is the best way to ensure that. And that's so important. It can be hard to convince a company, though, to realize that that interactive model is effective. What were those conversations like inside the company? I think that, well, there were a couple of different factors there. I believe that, first of all, there was a shared interest, right? We wanted to get early critical market share, and we wanted clients who were willing to work with us to make that happen. We found some clients who were willing to do that and found a few big clients that were willing to do that. And those clients were willing to say, hey, you know, if you let us have input on the design of this product, because every utility is a little bit different and they wanted a product that met their needs. They wanted that high touch customer service, if you will. And so that's what they got in exchange for participating as a tester, getting early input on the product and also serving as a, a really good use case and a really good recommendation. They would uh, they, they once we had one good success with one big utility, that utility served as a reference to help us get a lot of other larger utilities. Yeah, having a success under your belt is definitely helpful with something like that. And it sounds to me like one of the challenges for what you were doing was you were looking at Agile not only as something that happens within a software development environment, but something that happens from the executive level all the way down. Oh, yes, absolutely. Agile is not just a development process. It's a new way of doing business. Yes. I, I guess what I'd like to ask you is the the concept of metagility. How does that apply to Agile as, as somebody might understand it from a software development perspective? So metagility has a number of different components to it. You know, there's a lot of different frameworks out there. There's less, there's DSDM, there's safe, scaled agile, there's uh, disciplined agile, a lot of different frameworks out there. And they do a lot of different things or they, they have different focus. For example, safe is focused on the enterprise. And then you have other frameworks. Uh, well, Scrum is not really a framework, it's more of a method, but it, it focuses on the teams, the team rituals. Kanban focusing on work in progress or work in process, I should say. What Metagility does is it focuses on the product development engine, focuses on uh, product management, project management, development testing, and then uh, getting that product out the door with as high as quality as possible, as quickly as possible in very difficult contexts like embedded systems. And so it has uh, a methodology for hybrid agile implementations for embedded systems. It helps you it guides you on whether you should take a pure agile approach or a hybrid agile approach or just stick with waterfall, uh, depending on your situation. And then it provides uh, a roadmap for how to best integrate waterfall and agile techniques to produce this hybrid agile implementation to get the most out of it. Because our research found that uh, with embedded systems development, that had, has proven to be the best implementation method to get the most out of ag most agility out of the process. It's not correct for everyone. If you have like a pure software environment, maybe a pure agile approach is better. 
But hybrid agility has had sort of a bad rap because it's something that people, many organizations tend to fall into if they've tried to transform into agile and they sort of backslid and they end up with wagile or scrum or fall or whatever you call it. But if it's done purposefully and you're basing your mix of hybrid, of waterfall and agile characteristics on a, on a methodology, then it can prove to be very successful. Another part of agility is a new set of metrics. So one of the problems that's been in this industry for a long time is how do we know how agile we are, right? That's one of the questions we ask ourselves. Okay, we've, we've had this agile transformation. We've done it agile for a while, but how do we know how agile we are? Are we agile? Are we really agile? Are we a little bit agile? How do you measure it? And that's been a problem in the industry. And this research answers that question. There, there's Out of the research came a theory called agile vorticity, which is a new measurement for telling you how agile you are. And that's a very powerful concept because if you know how agile you are, then agility can also help you determine, okay, this is where we are with agility with relation to the market and with relation to our internal process. And here are the things we need to do to tweak it and become as agile as we possibly can be. The metrics are, are always something that people ask about when it comes to an agile approach. And I would love to learn a little bit more about this concept of vorticity and how, how you derived it and how, how you calculate it. So I have actually a pretty long academic paper that describes it, and uh, it gets a little bit ethereal. So, uh, But the best way that I illustrated it, as I illustrated in the book, is with a thought experiment. Uh, using a whirlpool as sort of a, a way to illustrate it. That's why you have, that's why you see a whirlpool on the cover. There's actually a, a whirlpool diagram. I think thought experiments are a really excellent way to explain theories. That's kind of like what Einstein did with his elevator, right? Or Schrodinger's cat or whatever. So I was trying to be a little bit artsy and trying to figure out a way to illustrate this theory that would make it easy to understand. If you think about uh, where does the word vorticity come from? Well, if you think about the flow of water in a river, for example, the water in the middle is actually flowing faster than the water closer to the shore because it's slowed down by friction. And so if you put a little vorticity meter in that flow of water, which is essentially like a little windmill, you stick that in the water. It's a little buoy with a flag, a little whirly flag on it. And you stick that into the water. And if the two flows of water are moving at drastically different speeds, it will spin very fast. And that means you have very high vorticity. If the two streams of water are moving at about the same speed, it will not spin and you'll have low or zero vorticity. So that's that's a theory of fluid dynamics. And that's where the word vorticity comes from. Well, how does that apply to agile? Well, in, in the book, I use the, a whirlpool as a way to illustrate how an embedded systems organization works in relation to its market. If you think about the scenario that I talked about earlier, where you have your hardware teams and your firmware teams and your software teams. And then you, you, you map, you think about a whirlpool. You know, the hardware teams typically move slow. They don't have iterations, especially, at least in the case studies that we were talking about with the smart meters, they had uh, typically a, an 18 month life a, a de development cycle. And then we had firmware teams who were really developing software, but a lot of their work was tied to hardware. And so they would have 30 day sprints. They would sort be sort of agile, but they wouldn't have two-week sprints. They'd have 30-day sprints. And our software teams would have two-week sprints, and they move the fastest. And so if you think about, well, how do I map that to a whirlpool? Well, the, the water in a whirlpool, the outside is slower. And as you get closer to the center of the whirlpool, the water moves faster. And so what I did is I mapped these development tracks on top of that whirlpool to illustrate how agile can change from one development track to another. 
The idea being that with hybrid agility, Agile can be adapted differently by different teams. And in the center of, of this whirlpool, you have market agility. So you have the uh, market pressure, the pressure of the market. And uh, market agility is the uh, essentially the, uh, the product development or the, the product genesis of what the product is going to be, which is created typically by your product management team to try and meet the market needs and the market timing. And so the idea of agile vorticity is we have these two forces that are moving at different speeds. You have market agility moving very fast, and you have process agility, which is composed of your hardware, firmware, software teams, or it may just be a software team. So the idea is, is that you want your process agility your, of your internal organization to be as fast as the market so that you have those two streams of water moving at the same time and you have zero agile vorticity. If you have, for example, the market moving really, really fast and your organization is not keeping up, those two streams of water are moving at very different speeds and you're going to have very high vorticity. I can't even visualize a situation in which the process agility would move as fast as the market agility. It feels to me like it would be almost impossible since the market tends to be very chaotic. And it's almost the role of product to insulate us a bit from the chaos of that, while nonetheless delivering the value to our customers through the process that we have. Well, in our case studies, we found the organization does certain things to try and modulate the market by controlling the customer so to speak. And there are tools that the vendors can leverage to sort of control or temper the market a little bit or temper the expectations of their customers in certain industries to sort of, the idea is to bring both of those sides together. And you can try to move as fast as you can internally, but you can also, there's also some things you can do to uh, control market agility as well. So when I picture it in my mind, what I'm seeing is a whirlpool in which the market is moving very fast in the center and hardware development, for example, might be moving very slow at the outside. And it's a progression from that slower aspect to the faster aspect with an interface at some point where it goes between what's happening in the marketplace and how we how we apply it to our process. And what you're taught, what you're targeting as vorticity is the relationship across all of those different things, not changing the speed of any of them. That's right. The, the relationship is a really big part of it. Yes. And there's things you can do that will influence the speed of your process agility and, of course, market agility as well. So there are ways to influence it. But the relationship is a big part of it, too, because agility goes into part of it. You know, in Agile, we hear a lot about interactions, right? People versus process and tools. It's all about people interactions. But what is that really? We don't really know what that is. We know, you know, agility puts a, a definition around that. It classifies the different interactions that our most successful case studies did and how they manage those interactions in the most optimal way. And it illustrates how to make these three development tracks, hardware, firmware, and software, work together the best. And also with market agility and your product management teams and project management as well. Cool. And unlike some of the other frameworks, this one is optimized for companies that are integrating hardware, firmware, and software with a marketplace. Yes, I would say so. That's awesome because it feels like that's unaddressed by some of the other frameworks out there in terms like a lot of them, as you said, are targeted at different use cases. And that's one that's missing. I think so. It has been for a long time. And I'm excited about it because I think that it's the preeminent use case today. I mean, I think that's where it just seems like all the cool stuff is happening with devices, with these embedded systems. So what brought you into your agile journey in the first place? What, what got you interested in something like this to start with? 
Well, you know, I was a, a systems architect and engineer for a number of years, and I've been working with technology since I was a kid. I, I started programming on a Commodore VIC-20 when I was 13. You know, I, I've always loved learning. I mean, in the technology business, you're going to be learning all the time. That's part of it. But I began to feel like I would spend some time learning a new technology, and the next thing I know, that technology would be obsolete, and then you'd have to learn something else. And that's fine when you're young, and there's nothing wrong with it long term. But I felt like I got to a point where I felt like I was treading water, that I wasn't building a lot of knowledge equity. I decided that I wanted to build a body of work that would be longer lasting, you know. And so I decided to go back to school and and I, I decided to get a Ph.D. because I felt like it would allow me to create my own body of work that could make a bigger impact and a bigger difference on the industry. And around that time, I was still working and the firm that I was working with. Uh, this this smart meter development firm was uh, encountering these challenges. And I thought, wow, you know, it'd be really great if I could leverage these research skills I'm learning to solve this problem. And that's how Metagility came about. Is that where you were introduced to Agile or had you been introduced to it before that? I'd been introduced to it before that at a previous company, but they had, you know, I, I think I'd worked uh, at a big telecom at the time and they had, uh, you know, Agile evolved with, uh, what was it? There were rad development techniques and RUP and things like that. So I was doing a lot of work with that, which were sort of primitive forms of Agile. So it, it was in the it, it was in the ether, so to speak. But it wasn't until I got to work with this firm that we had we, that I was encountering an Agile transformation in earnest. I would say you're taking me on a on a wonderful memory trip through all of all these frameworks and approaches and techniques that people were trying in order to uh, align business requirements with engineering requirements and uh, making them work together. Uh, and, and you have an interesting combination in that you have both a business background and an engineering background. That's not a usual combination. That's true. One of the things that motivated me, and this may sound a bit crass, but it was true, is that as an engineer, I became frustrated with all the bad decisions that were being made at the top. I realized that uh, I was spending less time working with cool technologies and creating cool things and more time fixing problems that were the result of bad management decisions. So you took it upon yourself to make those changes and, and be able to speak the language of business so that you could improve that process. And you did it in an entrepreneurial way. You didn't just go off and get a degree and then go get a brand new job. You were you sounded like you did this while you were working. That's right. Yes. Tell me a little bit about how that worked in terms of keeping your job while still getting an education. That was pretty tough. I uh, would spend uh, a lot of long nights working, a lot of long nights and a lot of weekends working. Uh, I'd, I'd work during the day, obviously, at my day job. And then around, you know, maybe six o'clock, I would still stay in the office. But, you know, I might work on some of my schoolwork or some of the papers I was writing and then sometimes come home and still work on it a little bit. And then on the weekends, do quite a bit there as well. So a lot of long hours. <laughs> I think a lot of people think about doing that. Was your company supportive of this effort? Yeah, they were. They certainly were. Yes. Yeah, that, I think that that makes a big difference is finding a place you can work that can support you in trying to do something like that. And when I say supportive, not just about going out and doing it, but also about bringing those ideas back into the company. Yeah, they allowed the uh, research study to be done there, which took some doing. You know, when you do a, a formal research study supported by a university, you know, you're anytime you're doing research with human subjects, there's a lot of rules you have to follow, a lot of regulations you have to follow. And so they were willing to uh, allow that to happen there because they wanted to know the answers as well. They were just as curious as I was, which was great. And so I was able to do that there, as well as a couple other companies, too. That's great. And how, how did that evolve from something where you were working inside of the company where you were getting your education to expanding that out to something where you'd work with multiple companies? 
Well, eventually, it was kind of a slow progression. You know, we, we implemented the change. We did a lot of research uh, with that company and a few other companies I had done some research with through my university. And then I slowly, over a period of time, compiled a body of research and published these papers with the results in a number of different journals. And this took a, a number of years. And then eventually I decided, hey, you know, I want to take this, you know, I want to take this knowledge to uh, other companies. I want to be able to replicate this knowledge to a greater number, to a bigger audience. So at that point, I realized that in order to do that, I was going to have to go off on my own. And so eventually I left my company and published the book and also managed to get my my uh, framework, the Metagility framework patented, which is a big win as well. I don't think the other frameworks have been patented. So these things allowed me to create some pretty significant IP that would allow me to create some really unique services to sell to other companies. But I realized that I started to do a little bit here and there, but realized that in order to really take it to, uh, as far as I wanted to, I would have to go full time on it, which is what I did. But that took several years of planning. I'm interested in that process because that's one of those things people tend to gloss over when they're talking about starting a company. That intermediate phase where you are just starting to take on clients, just starting to build a side business. How did, how did you go about doing that? Because getting those first few clients is, is often the hardest part about starting things. Right. I think different people approach it different ways, but I found that it was critical to find someone in sales that could help. Sales. Okay. Yeah. So I found a salesperson that could help or a partner of some kind uh, that could help me find some clients or set up these business meetings. I mean, I, I did a good bit of networking on my own, but, you know, unless, you know, I, I was I was good with uh, the business research. I was good with engineering, but with sales, I can I can sell when I get in front of someone. But at the time, I didn't have the network. Uh, I do now, but it took a, t- a long time to build that network. And it just, if you don't have that network readily available, you're going to need someone who does. And that was critical early on. I can imagine. And I think a lot of people do think about bringing on somebody to help with sales. It's a hard thing to find somebody who can speak your language well enough and network with the right audience. How did you go about finding somebody to help you with that? Uh, well, first thing I did was I joined a, a local incubator. This gave me access to some people. I also joined, uh, well, I joined a couple of incubators, actually. And just uh, I slowly began to meet more and more people who were doing business development and sales. And I talked with several of them, trying to find someone who could help me. I, think I did a presentation to uh, an organization called One Million Cups. You may have heard of them. And there was someone in the audience who was very interested. And he said, you know, I think I know someone who may be a good fit to help you out. And they hooked me up with that person and they helped me get the first uh, couple of clients that I had to do some of the beta testing for some of the work that I was doing. And it just sort of mushroomed from there over time. Nice. So I hear two different threads in there. One is the concept of incubators. And then the other one is going out and giving presentations as a way of marketing your business. Let, let's start with the incubators. What What is an incubator in the way that you're defining it? And how, how did that work for you? Well, incubators, I think primarily most of them are set up as like a knowledge resource. They offer a set of courses or classes. They can help teach you do various things, how to run a business, how to start a business, or, you know, how to how to do anything from build an elevator pitch to how to get investors, uh, understanding the investment process, everything from angel investors to bigger investors, enterprise or venture capitalists, if, if I should say. So there was a whole lot of courses there you could take. And also uh, there were people there who you could get in contact with to find out more about public relations or PR work or you know, government contracting, things like that. So I explored all those different threads of, of trying to get business. What type of press should I try and get? Uh, you know, how do I promote myself? And 
you know, is government contracting something that would be right for me? How would I go about doing that? What's that process like? So it was a good way to learn some of those things that you're, you're not going to find anywhere else. It's a good, it's a good knowledge resource. And sometimes you get a chance to network with other entrepreneurs that are looking to do the same thing you do, and you can exchange ideas. I think picking the right incubator is a critical thing because there are places that present themselves as masterminds where you're paying a lot of money. There are places where they want to take a percentage of your business. What kind of a model were your incubators? They just, it was just a membership. They had like three levels of membership, what they called educate, accelerate, and then signature. And I was an accelerate member. And essentially you could sign up, anyone could sign up as an educate member, which was a, a small fee. And that would give you access to sign up and pay for their classes. That's basically all there was to that. And then moving to the accelerate level basically required going full time on your business. It's what it really required and uh, meeting with a catalyst. And they would ask you a few questions and it's sort of, a, I guess you could say it was not really a set process. They just would talk to you and figure out what you're doing and decide if you qualify to be an Accelerate member and they would admit to you. And then becoming a signature member, I never really figured out what that was all about. So <laughs> it sounds like you graduated before you needed to. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, you know, some like you said, you know, some incubators are good or some incubators are not so good. And even the good ones are sometimes not as good as you think. You know, in some cases, this incubator. There were some things I got out of it. There were some things that were helpful, but also I began to feel like, you know, they were more focused on pushing a political agenda or more, fo more focused on how much money you had in your pocket as opposed to really helping people advance their business. It seemed like uh, if you had all the money in the world, then they would open all the doors for you because they had access to other, you know, investors, they had inv access to an investor network and potential customers and things like that. But you essentially had to have a good bit of funding for them to open those doors. Right. And it, it sounds like the sort of thing that could be a horror story to some people who could just throw all of their money into it if they don't have that entrepreneurial spark that would let them get the value out of it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it sounds like you decided not to stick with this one, but you got value out of it from what you invested. Yeah, I think so. Learned a lot from it. Were they also the ones who encouraged you to go to the other side of things, which is where you were giving presentations and speeches and talking about what you do? No, I figured that out on my own. There's a there's an author out there called Robert Bly, and he's a solopreneur. He's an engineer turned writer and consultant. And I've read a lot of his books, and he was a, sort of an influence for me. So I bought much of his catalog. And in there, he talks about what you need to do to promote yourself as a solopreneur and, and how to build your business and sales and all this stuff. And one of the things he talked about was doing speaking engagements. And I knew that I had this Metagility framework, and I wanted to evangelize this framework. And when it comes to PR, I think a lot of it is about volume. If you look at uh, YouTube is a good example. You know, if you want to get noticed on YouTube, it's really, well, there's a lot of things, but a, a big part of it is volume, producing content on a regular basis. So I was trying, just trying to get, you know, as many speaking engagements as I could to sort of get my name and face and idea out there. The One Million Cups was one of them, as well as many others. So I've heard the name Robert Bly before. He, he's the poet who was involved with the men's movement? No, there's two. This is uh, a guy I'm talking about is Robert W. Bly. And of course, in his books, he talks about some consternation he has with getting confused with the poet. I can just imagine because that is the first thing that came to my mind. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't the poet. It's a different guy. But this was another program that you've invested in as well? 
Yeah, he's got a lot of CDs and books and, uh, you know, kits that you can buy to sort of learn how to gear towards uh, being a solopreneur, really. Of course, he's in the copywriting business, which I'm not in at all. But I like the fact that he was an engineer originally, which I was, and he's learned how to basically do marketing and do sales and create content and do all these different things on his own. And so I, I kind of was really excited about that, and I wanted to learn how he did it. So I don't, I don't like everything he does, but there are a lot of things that uh, he's developed that have helped me. Well, it is your business and you pick and choose the things that work for you. And so the challenge, again, is going from being a full-time employee to being a full-time solopreneur. I'm guessing that wasn't a hard edge cut that you made. No, not not at all. It was a slow, a lot of planning. I'd say I planned it for a good two or three years before I actually stepped off the precipice. I think you have to, first of all, save a lot of money. I think that's important. At least several months of income if you can. Or you should really. That's the first thing. And of course, I, I planned out very carefully how I was going to approach it. And, and of course, I had a customer ready to go when I did step off. I didn't have just no clients and no income. I had clients ready to go so that I, you know, didn't have any dead spots. Nice. So, and we were in a situation though where you were working with your clients while simultaneously developing your presentations, while simultaneously, it sounds like writing your book, which is a lot, a lot that's stretching yourself pretty thin. I'm curious how you juggled all that. Yeah, it was pretty tough. It was a big investment in time and effort. But I think basically I just put in a lot of hours on my own time and evenings and on the weekends. I think you have to kind of like what you do as well. I mean, writing the book, for example, took me several months to do. Of course, I had to sell the idea first and find a publisher. It's not a self-published book. It's a book that's published by a real publisher. So I had to sell the idea first. And that's something I learned from like the Bob Light book. He talked about how to write a book proposal and how to sell a publisher on an idea. And I used those ideas to get my publishing deal. And then once I had that deal, I had a certain number of months to get that book written. But it was just exciting. And I just did. I, I like writing. I like creating stuff like that. I wouldn't say that it came easy, but at least I liked what I was doing. And so I was able to stick to it and keep doing it and not just drop it, you know. That is one of the advantages of working with a, with an actual publisher is that they do keep you on a schedule and they work. They have editors who work with you. Is that why you chose to go with the publisher as opposed to going the self-publishing route these days? Uh, that was part of it. But I really I, I have self-published a few books. They're not technical books or agile books. They're uh, on other topics. But I have self-published some other books. For this book, I just wanted to uh, get the added legitimacy and marketing capability that going with a publisher has, because credibility is so important. And a book that's published by a major publisher, or at least a decent-sized publisher, I think, adds a little more credibility to what you're doing. I have been in some situations where you know people will skeptically look at the book at first, and they'll turn it over and see who the publisher is, thinking that it's self-published, and then they realize, oh, it's not. I think it makes a difference. That is interesting. And I think one of the reasons that a lot of people self-publish is because you can make a lot more money when you don't have a publisher taking so much of the profits. But if what you're going for isn't necessarily the money, but the credibility, then that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's a business card, really. That's what it really is for me. And it's very helpful in that way. I could see that. And has that played into your presentations as well? Yes, it has. Well, I think the, the book is sort of a segue into a presentation. If you're an author and you've written a book, you have something to talk about. And so that typically gets people interested to say, OK, we'll let you come and speak. It gives them something to preview or look at before you do so that they feel comfortable with what it is you're going to present as well. So I think it's a it's a really good tool for that. 
I could definitely see that. And right now, what, what is the structure of your business? You started off, I know, as a solopreneur, but you also mentioned having a salesperson working with you. Right. Well, you know, originally, my original idea when I had the theory of agile vorticity and, and all the intellectual property and the research papers that I had developed, actually before I had uh, written the book, the original idea was that I was going to productize this IP as a software application. So I took on a couple of partners and we developed a project management and program management application called AgileWorks, which is the name of my company, that would provide uh, managers, project managers, the PMO office, that sort of thing, with the tools to actually manage this process. And I was going to provide training and consulting services on the side, but the idea was that would be kind of a small line of business and we would focus on selling the software. But as I started presenting this software to potential clients, they said, hey, we, we really like the tool. But what we need more importantly, really right now is, is training and we need consulting. to We need boots on the ground to help us implement this agile process. And so the script was flipped on me. I, I basically had to uh, spend more time focusing on the training and consulting and less time on the software. And so what became the primary business line for me turned out to be something very different from what I originally expected. So you put yourself in a challenging position because how do you scale that? I can see how you scale a software business because you sell more software, you get more clients out there, customers using it. But when you're consulting, you are the product. Right. Yeah, very much so. So I developed a curriculum of courses based on the book, and those are on my website. And I have a number of different courses for different things. But one of those is uh, Metagility for, for Agile coaches and Agile trainers and consultants. And so the idea is that to scale this is to transfer this knowledge to other coaches and license the idea, license the IP to allow them to, and certify them on it to allow them to go out and, and train others. And so that's how you scale. And that takes time, but eventually I think I'll get there. Yeah. In the meantime, you're continuing to consult with businesses, right? That's right. Yes. Yeah. I would say right now, consulting is the majority of my business with training courses behind and then software at the end, very little. I would like for training to be the majority of, of the business, the majority of the income, and then consulting to be an ever smaller portion, of ever smaller line of business, because obviously trading hours for dollars is not scalable. Exactly. And so uh, how, how do you picture the structure of your business changing in terms of uh, going from the solopreneur to something that supports that model? Uh, I would say that eventually it's probably going to require taking on more partners and uh, particularly with probably sales. I have a, a marketing person working with me now. I think that's going to involve probably uh, some, maybe some uh, special partners who are interested in taking this idea forward. Right now, it's officially an LLC is what the, the company is. And I've had partners before originally with the software. But since the software hasn't turned out to be a big part of the business, those fellows have moved on. And so I'm interested in maybe finding other partners that are interested in the coaching aspect of the, of the business. I love the agile way that you are adapting as, as the situation changes and as you're discovering what customers actually are looking for. Yeah, I think that's a big part of being an entrepreneur is you have to be willing to kill your babies. I mean, originally, we put our heart and soul into developing this software application, and it's a good application. And I think we can still sell it, but it just turned out not to be solving the biggest pain point that clients in this business have right now. They really want the training and consulting. And so that's, that's where the problems are, or the challenges are, and the opportunities. Well, knowing that there is a market out there for people who are who want that kind of consulting, I bet a lot of people in my audience are going to want to find out how they can find out more about MetAgility and how they can get some of the training or some of the information about it. Sure. You could go to AgileWorks.com, and that is A-G-I-L-E dash W-O-R-X 
agileworks.com, agileworks.com. And there's a number of links under there. There's a, a link under there for workshops. We have some workshops coming up this year. You can either access it directly from that site or you can go to metagility.technology and pull up a list of workshops that I have coming up. Uh, of course, you know, due to the coronavirus situation, there's no workshops right now. They're all pushed back into the fall, but they're there. And I'm hoping that uh, the fall workshops will go on as scheduled. I'm hoping those won't get canceled, but that's a good way to find out. Obviously, you can also take a look at the book. If you go to Google, you can Google the word Metagility and you'll find all sorts of stuff about the book. It's sold just about everywhere. And that's a good place to start, a good inexpensive place to start. And of course, the AgileWorks uh, website itself has some resources on there about what Metagility is. And you can always email me, david at agileworks.com, A-G-I-L-E-W-R-X.com. And I'll be happy to talk to anyone. Awesome. Well, David, thank you for being on the show and thank you for sharing all of that. I'm, I'm excited to find out more. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.